This show is brought to you by Podetize, podcast hosting and done-for-you production services that get you heard by more of your ideal listeners. Visit podetize.com to book a free strategy call. That's P-O-D-E-T-I-Z-E.com. Welcome to Pod Tease. Each week, we'll grant your wish. We'll surprise and delight you with binge-worthy podcasts that are sure to become your new favorites. Our hand-picked selection of changemakers, rebels, do-gooders, educators, funnymakers, and more will make their way onto your new and noteworthy list. Do you have a show that you think needs to be featured? Check out our show notes for your chance to be our next Pod Tease. Hey, Pod Teasers. It's me, Karina Belizzi host of Care More Be Better, The Media Casters, Nutrition Without Compromise, and of course, Pod Tease. The reason I'm rattling off the podcasts I am involved in right now is simple. You are going to meet someone very special today, the person who got me into podcasting. That's right. I blame him for both inspiring me and pushing me to get started. Here's what happened. In December 2020, When I expressed interest in podcasting, he lit a fire under me and gave me a goal. He told me I would have to record four episodes in the next two months. And to make sure it happened, this person, he even gifted me the production of both my intro and my outro. For those of you that don't podcast, that's what you just heard at the very beginning of this show and what you'll hear at the finish of this one, too. Usually you coming with a call to action of some sort, like rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Anyway, he thought that simply by giving me this holiday gift, that he would push me to act. And wow, was he right or what? To date, I have recorded over 100 episodes, and I now have two podcasts that I solo host and two that I co-host, including this one. Who is this person, you might ask? None other than Mikhail Alphon. He has a podcast called Simply Oversharing with Mikhail Alphon. So today, you get to meet Mikhail Alphon himself, my constant social media collaborator, someone I have immense respect for, and who I'm proud to call a dear friend. The episode that we're sharing today is one that I personally love, especially given my love of all things nutrition and fitness. So you'll get to meet his guest, Nikki Boyd who happens to be a director of nutrition and a fitness aficionado herself. I know that you'll just love them both. It's an incredible conversation and one that I am happy to have been a fly on the wall of, even if just in my earbuds. So as we commence today's journey, I want you to think about something. What were you like in high school? What got you where you are right now to this moment? And what have you learned along the way? You'll understand why I've put these questions in your head in just a moment. So let's get to it. Let's mix it with Mikhail Alphon. This is Oversharing with Mikhail Alphon. Alphon. What is up, you lovely listener? Welcome to another episode of Oversharing. As always, I am super pumped for today's episode, but for this one in particular, because we're answering questions from all of you to help debunk myths and misconceptions about nutrition and dieting 
for active lifestyles. And to help tell that story, we have a certified nutritionist with way too many certifications to even fit in an Instagram bio. She's also the director of nutrition at the 12 based in Costa Mesa, California. And we're going to get to know her a little bit better before we dig into that Q&A. But before I speak too much, let's allow Nikki Boyd to overshare. How are you doing, Nikki? I'm so good. What a fantastic welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy I executed that the way that did. <laughs> did I didn't know so how it was going to go. <laughs> well, I appreciate you uh, making time today. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we started hit it, uh, hitting record, and there's I have, we I don't have any other meetings today. I hope so. We could talk for a little for a little while. I think there's a lot. I don't you have, have to a share. lot of meetings either. I mean, the meeting of you know going back and picking up whatever mess my dogs la- you know made, but we're cool. <laughs> we're cool there. <laughs> That's funny. Um, Nikki, what were you like in high school? Oh, I love this question. And um, I, I had, I knew you were going to ask it and I had to think back, like, when's the last time somebody asked me that? And I honestly can't remember, which is how old I am. So, um, you know, if I were to describe it in one word, I would say overachiever slash lost. And Mm. I'll tell you why. Growing up, I knew that I had expectations placed on me. So I knew that high school was really important. I knew that I had to really, I wanted to get into a good college and I wasn't naturally, I guess say naturally smart, meaning, hey, let's open up a book and I can, you know, memorize it and not have to study. I had to work really, really hard. Mm. So my attitude was kind of work hard at everything and try to be good at everything just because it would, in you know, my mind, give me more opportunity to get into school. My overall goal, I actually grew up as a dancer. So mm. in high school, school was important, but from 3.30, school got out at 3. From 3.30 to, I kid you not, about 9 or 10 every day, I was dancing. I was training right across the street. Um, ballet, jazz, tap. I really, really wanted to be a professional like Broadway dancer. I don't think it, that's why when I say confused, I don't think I realized that in order to do that, you you, you don't need to go to college. <laughs> I really wanted to go to college. So that shift kind of came up around junior year when SATs came up. And, you know, I realized, okay, where do we really want to go? So I decided that I wanted to stay in California and use dancing as a way to still kind of be relevant. I was very much wanting to get a dance agent. My mom said I couldn't do it until I was 18 and I had to keep my grades up. So here I am, overachiever, keeping the grades up, got into the school I wanted. And I moved to LA and was able to start auditioning. Mm. And it was a blast. But um, the reason why I say overachiever and why I say lost is just because you're in a, a position and it it pertains to what kind of got me to where I am now, where you're so used to people telling you what you need to be good at, you don't understand the why behind it. So if I look at how I perceived myself in high school, how I viewed myself in high school, there was a lot around body image, a lot, um, especially me wanting to be in the ballet world. I actually went away to train with the Pennsylvania Ballet when I was 13 and 14. It was an eight-week summer program. And I was never specifically told, you know, hey, you need to lose weight. But there was a definite emphasis on body image. And that's a very young age to be exposed to that. Mm -hmm. So um, I was introduced to, I would say for me, the feeling of having a perfect physique, definitely air quotes there at a very young age. And that perfectionism complex kind of just bled out into everything else. And um, I still struggle with it. 
<laughs> That's really interesting. What are those things that you were told you have to be good at that like that maybe didn't come naturally to you? Oh, such a good question. Ballet. Why did you have to be good at that? You know, I actually think I put that parameter on myself. So here was the really interesting thing. I was always, if I were to say naturally good, um, I excelled the best at jazz. I always won competitions in jazz, but my ballet teacher, when we got old enough, which was about, I'd say for me about 12, where she was willing to take on private lessons, would not take me. She Mm. said I just wasn't good enough. And I remember her specifically saying that. So in my mind, I needed to prove her wrong and to be good at ballet. And eventually, um, you know, through hard, hard work, I think I showed her that she did take me on. And for some weird reason, that was a really great form of approval for me. I mean, I was so young. It's, it sounds so silly right now, but that, that validation came further when I was accepted into the Pennsylvania Ballet. Um, and then I was actually moved up to their second highest level at 14 years old. So um, I think for me, that was something that didn't come natural that I really struggled at. And I wasn't, I don't have a photographic memory. Um, and I, I, I kid you not when I say that for me, like seeing a B on my report card was just awful. That sounds Mm. so crazy. But I mean, like I said, when you have this perfectionism mindset, there's no such thing as being less than. And to my family, um, I grew up with a very over bearing grandmother. Um, and she would probably admit that it was always, why didn't you get an A? Mm. So I struggled in school with science and math. There were so many nights when I would get done dancing at 10, get home by 1030 and be up till 230 in the morning studying, um, and then up again at six and over and over and over again. So nothing came easy, but, uh, in particular ballet, any type of math problem. (laughs) Similar, similar. I'm going to move this just a little bit closer towards you. There you go. Perfect. Don't be sorry. Um, It's I feel like when when I hear your story, I hear pretty decent reaction to you know somebody telling you that you have to be better in the realm of dance, and you wanted to prove that person wrong. Do you feel like this kind of comes from your maybe your grandma or whatever it might be telling you like, all right, a B plus isn't good enough or whatever the case may be. Hundred percent. Yeah. And to be totally transparent, um, it took me years after even graduating college to actually recognize that and even therapy to recognize that. And I don't think that she was doing it in a way to be hurtful. I just think, to be totally honest, I was the I was the grandchild. Uh, my parents divorced when I was young, and I really lived with my grandmother for quite some time. I, I consider her who the one who raised me. And um, I think she liked to brag about one of her grandkids. Mm. And I was the one that worked really hard and wanted to be accepted. And I think that I saw more affection from her when I did really, really well. I can't blame her for that. I mean, that goes super deep and into her childhood, et cetera. But it started very young for me. And it has, even in every portion of my career, you know, before I even got into, into nutrition, just my attitude towards college, my attitude towards dance auditions, it, it it's something that I've really worked hard to try to break because that perfectionism complex is not healthy, yeah. but it would absolutely stem from that. Did she immigrate here from Italy? 
No. So interestingly enough, though, did the DNA test 58 point something percent Italian. Uh (laughs) And then um, she's actually German. So Mm. her father spoke no English and was very, very rigid. And her mother was not a nice woman. So Mm. um, if I look back at that, I think she was probably struggling for approval from her parents, too. And, um, you know, when my parents got divorced, I was five. So if we think about it, she was having to raise kids all over again, mm. you know, with her own children in there. My mom had me pretty young. So in their late 20s. Yeah. And we lived with her until I was 12. So my mom got remarried. So she paid for dancing. She took me to dance lessons. And she, it was almost like, if I'm going to pay for this, it needs to be worth it. Mm. And she said it and she was never mean about it. Unless I came home and I was like, I didn't do great on a test. And it was like, well, why didn't you do? Why? You studied. Okay, great. You want me to do, you know? (laughs) But um, my husband, Josh, and I talk about that a lot. It's been something that has come into our marriage. And you don't necessarily realize those things until you look back and go, huh, that's kind of where it stemmed from. Yeah. It's just interesting to me to see where a lot of, you know, our personality traits come from, where especially things like competitiveness like i don't know if if anybody's like born and they're just like yeah you know i'm gonna i'm gonna be the baddest of asses around here (laughs) you know what i mean and i guess some people are but i i i would assume that it's more of like a nature versus nurture a nurture thing versus a nature thing but i I don't think you're right because what i was just gonna say is what comes along with that is i am competitive to a fault Mm -hmm. Very much so. In fact, it's one of those things, if I journal about it, I'm like, can I just be? Do yeah. I have to always place in a run? Do I have to always be the best? Like, is it going to, am I going to strike dead? But no, it is definitely something that I think is is learned. What's the weirdest competitive trait thing that you have going on right now? Uh, oh my gosh, this is, this is so embarrassing. Um, I, but I will admit it. Okay, so... I've been running forever. I kind of transitioned from dance in college to running. And I just started what I would call competitive running about a year ago where I'm starting to race and I'm really loving it. And the weirdest thing right now, I'm even embarrassed to say it, but I will, is I will actually compare my progress to that of elite professional runners. Gotcha. And it is so stupid because these people, like one one runner in particular, I mean, she's been she got a running scholarship to college for crying out loud. Like yeah. she just set the American half record, um, half marathon record, and I'm comparing myself. To oh, her. and she got a uh, she got a runner's scholarship to college, so she's also like seventeen, eighteen. No, no, no. She's thirty eight. Oh, she's gotcha. Been like it. Just the experience of mm. racing, just the experience of having to go through, you know, really tough training cycles. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, that's why, why can't you do that? And it, it is, it is so not even equal, but not, <laughs> I, you know, I'd venture to say that's not awful. It's good to look at, you know, assuming that you're in the same like age range or something like that. I, I think it's a good thing to look at people that are, uh, when it comes to physical or even mental things, like you look at somebody within this, the same age range, it's like, why can't I be something like that? There's truth to that, yeah. but I didn't realize the extent to what that really meant until I, you know, ended up just running my first marathon. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much the physicalness, I would say, but it's more like the mental toughness. Yeah. Because that is a muscle that nobody can teach you how to use. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there'll be I was doing a workout the other day, which was on the bike, but I didn't finish the interval. And I was like, 
you know, would she do this? No, no. she wouldn't. She wouldn't. No. So why did you stop? Like, you why did no- you stop the interval? I don't take you as somebody that stops the interval. I think, you know, that's a good question. Um, frustration. Mm. And I think it was me frustrated that I had to ride the bike, which I hate. I hate riding the bike. I hate it. And um, Is it I, a stationary bike? It's a Peloton bike. And I, I love Peloton, yeah. but I hate the bike. And it was the fact that there's that that feeling. I call it like the lactic acid threshold feeling mm. where y- every bone in your body tells you to stop, but you shouldn't. I love that feeling when I'm running, but when I'm on the bike, I'm like, I'm not even going anywhere. Like, what, <laughs> what am I doing? I'm in my living room doing, just sitting here. And I was like, I just got frustrated. I was yeah. like, I should be saving this for, you know, a gnarly run on the beach. And instead I'm cycling like a hamster in my house, you know? So that's why I stopped. And then, um, luckily, you know, I didn't dwell in it too much today. I had a rough one too. And I was like, okay, you can't go two hard workouts in a row and stop. Like do it, get to pull it together, Nikki, like get Mm. it together, you know, competitiveness. (laughs) That's not, you know, I mean, that's, it's, it's interesting that you find that embarrassing. I don't think it's that bad. (laughs) I'm so hard on myself. Yeah. I don't think it's that bad. Like for me, when I started boxing, it was something similar. I was watching like, you know, uh, let I was watching like Gennady Golovkin is one of my favorite boxers. Is an autograph thing over here. And Lomachenko, this guy right here. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we're not too far apart in age. Golovkin's like 37. I'm 35. And I remember watching him, watching Lomachenko, who's 33 or 34. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't look like that. I don't move like that. Like, why can't I do that? You know what I mean? And so, and this was like three and a half, four years ago now. And it's like, but it was that like mindset of like, that is a, that is an example of human excellence. I'm so far from that because I'm making excuses for myself, you know, I mean, but then, and then I get in there and I start maybe sparring kids and their kids because they're like 22 and i'm like oh why can't i keep up with them I'm like because they're 12 years younger than me 22 i yeah. also forget that yeah right you know um my first half marathon last year real real half marathon because a lot of them were virtual in 2020 um i did really well like I, I came in i had a time goal i beat my time goal but then you pull up all the results and you see that these women in front of you and I look at the first place woman and I was like, holy cow, how did this chick hit like 120? Mm. Like, oh, that's my new goal. And then, you know, my husband goes, well, how old is she? Yeah, she's 21. Hmm. Okay. Got about 20 years on me. <laughs> I've got about 20 years on her. But sometimes I also think that's just an excuse because somebody else is doing somebody it. Somebody else is doing it. Someone else is doing it. Wow. We should not like train together. <laughs> I feel like Josh, you know, uh, for the listener, Josh is your, uh, Nikki's husband. I feel like he might have a little bit of the same thing when it comes to business and stuff. I mean, like we'll, we'll the four of us will go out, go out to dinner and I'll be like, well, I could probably eat faster than you. So I, I don't know. <laughs> yes. And we actually, we'll go to the gym together, but we can't work out mm-hmm, together. Mm-hmm. Um, because we are competitive yeah. with each other and he can lift heavier than I am, but I'll, I can, but I'll be like, well, let's just jump on the treadmill and see who can run longer. And it just doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't work. But, um, it's not a bad characteristic to have. I really think it can be driving, but, um, it's also very humbling, especially when something, you know, you get injured or you can't do what you love right now. Obviously I'm suffering from a, an injury. Um, it reminds me that 
we're human and that we have to also, you know, understand that our path isn't necessarily the same as that professional athlete's path. And that's been really humbling for me because in my head, I want to be a professional athlete, yeah. but I think I missed the bus. So <laughs> uh, when you can't do the thing you love, how do you mentally like stay in the game? I'm going to be real transparent. There's a cycle that I go through. So just what happened this past with this particular injury, um, it was just off my first marathon. My coach, who is phenomenal, gave me two weeks off of running, which, by the way, mentally was rough. Um, I was great after a week. I'm like, let's go. Let's get it ready. But listening to somebody who's been down that road, I took the, the two weeks off. This was the first long run. And when I say long run, it was a 10-mile run that I was about to go on, and I was thrilled to go on it. Five miles in, what I now know was just a very inflamed plantar fascia tendon. So I go through this, I go through a phase of complete anger at myself. Like you should have known what were the signs that you missed. My hip was tight, um, my my tendons, my Achilles tendon. Why mm. did you do that? You know, I a lot of blame. And then um I get slightly depressed. I think my husband would say very depressed, where I get to this, the whole world is ending. I'm never gonna be able to run again which is very fatalistic. But about a weekend, I take a lot of time to really go, okay, I, I'm a firm believer that things happen for a reason. And what is it that I can learn from this? And I think for myself, it is that running was starting to take over every aspect of my life and not in a healthy way. You know, there, I'm not a professional runner, so it is a hobby. But I was starting to base my day, my good and bad days on if it was a good run or a bad run. Mm. And I think that this injury, um, you know, was just kind of God saying, you need to step back for a second. So I look at it like, okay, I can do one of two things. I cannot run. I can completely get out of shape. I could lift or I could come up with an excuse or I can do absolutely everything that I know I can do so that when I can go back to running again, I'm back to where I was within about a month. And now that's my focus. So it's a different change. I hate the bike, but if it's going to get me, if I, you know, keep my heart rate where it needs to be and keep me up at that threshold where I need to be so I can recover faster, I will do whatever it takes. If you need like a support group, I'll be there with you. I'm in the exact same boat. <laughs> it's not fun boat to be in. It's awful. It's really humbling. Yeah. I mean, same, you know, as you know, like a couple of weeks ago, I fractured a rib, can't box or anything at mm -hmm. all. I had the same thing. And I, and, you know, made excuses. I was like, not excuses, but I made excuses to like not read the word in the morning or something like this. And my pastor was like, well, if God's trying to tell you a lesson, you better learn it or else he's going to tell you it twice. And I'm like, well, okay. Like, <laughs> It's interesting you said that because I actually think that this is the second time that mm -hmm. I've been mm -hmm. ministered to this way. The first time I got injured was in Texas and it was the tiniest, tiniest tear, literally less than a centimeter in the exact same foot. And if I'm being totally transparent, I was so focused on, you know, getting back into running and getting back into racing. That injury made me pull back and go, if you're going to do this running thing, and if you're going to run marathons, it better be for a reason besides just getting a damn medal. Mm -hmm. You better come up with something that is going to be meaningful, that's going to last longer. And it was because of that, that this past marathon I did, we actually raised $3,000 for Save the Children. I love this. So. It was me going, okay, I can do what I think I was, I've been meant to do at this point, but it can't be for your own personal glory. That can be part of it, but there better be something else. 
So whatever this is for, I think I think it's me, God humbling me, saying, take a step back. If I wanted you to be an Olympian, <laughs> yeah, you would have been. You would have been an Olympian. You can still yeah. hit your goals, but don't neglect your family. Mm-hmm. Don't neglect your husband. Mm-hmm. And don't, and this is really hard mm-hmm. to say, I'm so glad that you know you obviously you're a man of faith. Don't put running on the same level as me. Mm-hmm. And hundred, um, I feel that. I actually read that in a in it happened two nights ago in a devotion that I'm doing, where it said so many times. Many of us think that we don't, you know, we don't we don't have idols. Like I don't have an idol. It's a calf. That's like a weird thing that you know make out of yeah. out of wood. But I did mm-hmm. because I was making running just as important as God, and I think this is God way of saying, "Nope, I'm gonna keep you on your back till you get it." Yep. So I get it. Yeah. And I'm really praying now that uh, I don't have to learn a third time the hard yeah. way. I love that. This is so cool. Things that we would have never learned if we never did the podcast. So I'm happy. Thank you for sharing that part. <laughs> You're welcome. With us I as hope well. it helps someone. Yeah, man. It's it's crazy. So high school to college. You went to college. You realized you didn't have to be, or you didn't have to go to college to be a professional dancer. <laughs> when does this shift start to come about, where you start focusing on nutrition more than dancing? Great question. Um, so even though I went, I went to USC. And I went there um, particularly because it was in L.A. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize how much I would hate auditioning in the dance world. For those of you that aren't familiar with that, it's basically like a cattle call. They call you. You have an agent. They say, hey, there's an audition for a music video. And it's up off a Sepulveda Boulevard. And your first thing is, crap, how many one-way streets are to get there? How long is this going to take me? And I just started not enjoying that so much. So I ended up wanting to still dance. I promise there's a tie in here. And, um, I tried out to be a Laker girl fell flat on my face the first time. Literally, literally. So I injured my foot, um, two weeks before same foot that's injured. now. (laughs) Every injury is on the damn left foot. And I remember there's about seven or eight different cuts. And the first, the first combination I fell flat on my face and I was like, literally did a kick, boom, fell. Um, ankle gave out, but she kept me. Their director kept me. Long story short, um, I got through, made it to be, you know, a Laker girl. And those women, my first year. You made it to be a Laker girl. I did. Yeah, wow. I did. I was cheered for the Lakers for three years, actually. That's pretty cool. It was really cool. Um, mm-hmm. Looking back, it seems like forever ago, but I don't think you realize what an awesome opportunity it is at the time. But mm-hmm. um, the first year that I did it, I was with, I would say, older women. And by that, I just mean I was 18. They were probably 23, 24, 25. What an industry. Um, And they were in the most phenomenal shape I have ever seen. And, you know, 18, 19, never had to watch what I ate um, or, you know, knew you needed to be thin, but I was still going out in, in high school and eating Carl's Jr. bacon Western cheeseburgers. Okay. So it just didn't affect you. So the minute that I made that team and I saw these women, I went, okay, we need, something needs to change. I need to step it up a little bit. Nobody ever told me to, but I wanted to look like them. These were toned women. These were women that ate very, very healthy. Um, I watched them. So I didn't know about much, but I just mimicked what they were eating. And then it fascinated me how throughout the course of the season, you know, August was the audition. And then you'd get to like February, everyone's made the team. Some of these women didn't look the same. Um, they didn't look bad. Nobody would say that, but they didn't look as toned, you mm. know, and they're, they're 20, 21, 22, they're going out, they're getting into clubs or, you know, you're drinking, et cetera. And I started seeing 
how stuff like that could affect the body. Fast forward to year two. Um, I'm now a veteran on the squad. A lot of those women, that's an old Laker girl, by the way. No offense to anyone. It's like, like 20 to 21. Um, most of them. But, you know, this was like when you're like 24, or 25, when you're done with college, uh, a lot of people move on. It's not necessarily, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a phenomenal gig, but it's not something that's going to support you financially. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were women back then that did it and they had multiple other jobs. Uh, but the, the majority are usually in their college years. So the second year of the squad, there was a lot younger women. Mm. And that was when our director really noticed between August and even like November, preseason's over, where bodies changed. Mm. And um, looking back, I think I would have done the same thing. Instead of focusing on nutrition, she she just kind of took the scale out and started weighing people. And um, Uh. I, I understand now why she did it. I really, really do. I mean, you'd think as a Laker organization, they'd have all these resources, but you'd be surprised. A lot of those resources are for the players and for rehab and for prehab. And the Laker girls, you think they're a big part of it, but let me tell you from experience, we're not. Okay. So, um, you know, there weren't that many resources. So I was never told to lose weight, but what I didn't want was to ever have to be in that position because she was starting to take girls off the court. And looking back, she probably should have um, because they weren't taking care of themselves. So that's when I started going, I don't want to be in that position. I need to really get it together. But I still didn't know what I was doing. I watched what I ate consistently. Mm. I literally, and, and this is just the honest to God truth, got into this really bad cycle of whatever I put in my mouth, I had to burn it off. So it started out unhealthy. I knew I needed to watch what I ate, but my schedule started to look like, let's get up in the morning. I would run around SC three times. That was six miles. Come back, um, shower, go to class. Uh, around, I had my schedule, so it would end around like three. Mm. Practice was on a Monday or Wednesday. It would either be from seven to nine or six to nine. And I would go to the gym again to burn off what I ate and then go to practice. So... It was that cycle that I started thinking was normal. And then, of course, you hit a breaking point. Yeah. And you're like, this can't be right. And it was when I hit that breaking point where I went, it's time to really focus on what I can eat and how I can live my life without feeling like I need to be constantly exercising everything off. Yeah. But it started in college. I didn't, I don't think I realized that nutrition was so important and that it really needed to be a big part of my life until about five years after college. Mm. I went straight into pharmaceutical sales and- uh, Which is the opposite. Which is totally the opposite, <laughs> right? Oh, it's actually one of the reasons why I got out of it, but mm. um, that's for another day. And um, the, the weird eating continued, I would say. You know, and then my husband noticed it. And if you know my husband, he is not one to sugarcoat anything. So that was kind of the beginning of the journey to getting, I would say, healthy. Yeah. You know, I think it's a weird eating. Can you elaborate on weird eating? Oh, for sure. Um, I remember it partic- completely. So this is going to sound odd, but my diet on when I was a Laker girl consisted of, you can laugh all you want. I did not eat real food. I ate chocolate all day long. I would literally get a big bag of peanut M&Ms 
eat a bunch of, literally just snack on that all day long. It's protein. No. Well, here's what my attitude was. Here's, Here's what I didn't realize. I was like, it gives me energy. Well, yeah, it's sugar, but it didn't make me feel bloated. If it was a game where we didn't have to wear a crop top, then I would eat like rice cakes and peanut butter and chocolate. And maybe I'd have like all carbs, hardly any protein, a pretzel. They had these Wetzel's pretzels that I'd have maybe a pretzel. But if there was, if it was a game where we were all wearing crop tops, I would hardly eat anything all day long and just snack on chocolate or candy just to keep my energy going. Yeah. And it's primarily like that sugar and adrenaline that you're running on. It was just up and down, up and down. Um, and it caused mood swings and sleep irregularities. And I had no clue why all I knew was I wasn't getting, I, I didn't have any issues with my coach getting on my back. Yeah. But, um, I don't know if there was any nutritional value in any of the food that I ate, to be honest with you. That's crazy. And that went on for years. It went on for years. Do you ever break any bones or anything? Like, Knock on wood, no. Um, I never broke a bone. I never got really injured. Um, I think it was because, to be honest with you, when I was that young, I still was doing a lot of strength training. So I had a personal trainer. Um, I was still lifting quite a bit. I've always loved it. So I think I was structurally very strong. But I did start noticing things like my skin was not good, especially up near my forehead. And at the time, I was like, well, we have to wear a pound and a half of makeup. That's what it is. Right. No, that's not what it was. Um, Sleep was rough. My anxiety, I had a lot of anxiety that would come and go right around my cycle. And I just thought it was part of life. I had no clue that it was just significantly due to a lack of nutrients, a lack of fat in my diet. Mm. And there was no one there to tell you, you know, it was just something you didn't talk about. Now, going back, what's really interesting is I thought I was the only one, but some of the girls that I danced with, like would eat baby food just because like literally, literally like, eat little baby food. And it, we didn't know. Was that a portion thing or because it tasted good? Not because it tasted good, because- <laughs> If we were, if what we didn't want, one of the second year, I didn't mention the second year that I tried out, you have to try out every year. Um, second year, one of the girls didn't make it back. Mm. Um, and she wasn't heavy. She was just big boned. Um, so, and I legitimately mean that she was, a fin- I mean, she looked fantastic, but our coach did ask her to lose weight and, you know, look, good for her. She was like, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't feel like I need to. And she probably didn't. But then again, she could have been getting pressure from upper management. So I didn't want to be that girl and neither did any of my friends. Yeah. So baby food it was for some of them. Baby food. That's so wild. And it didn't come out until about four years after we all were done. We were like, oh, gosh, yeah. That it, we, none of us knew about it. We just knew we weren't doing it right. We weren't yeah. eating healthy. What is up, Overshares? I have a secret to tell you, and it's only going to take a minute. The reason these podcasts sound so incredible week after week after week is because of our sponsor, MikeMe.com. MikeMe.com helped create the intro that you hear, helps edit every single episode, and helps me produce these podcasts as well. And it's been one of the best decisions I've made in terms of productivity and, of course, content quality. So if you have a podcast or you're looking to start your own, be sure to go to MikeMe.com. That's M I C M. E.com and you can get a podcast edited for free and you're not going to regret it. It's going to be one of the best decisions you can make for your content and your show. So get there right now. But before I speak too much, let's get back to the episode. You've touched on a couple points here where I, which I think are really important. 
Um, you mentioned that you would eat certain foods just because you didn't want to feel bloated. And I feel as if this is a decision that a lot of people make when they're choosing the, the food that they want to eat. They don't want to eat either a certain amount or a certain type of food simply because that it doesn't make them bloated. Therefore, because they don't feel bloated, they feel maybe healthier. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And it is probably one of the most common things I hear when I have a new nutritional client. I'm afraid of carbs or I don't like to eat carbs. They make me bloated. So bloating, there's a million reasons for it. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on that, but um, obviously no one likes to feel like that because you just feel heavier than you are. But usually the cause is from one of a couple of things. It could be a food intolerance, but if you're eating something like chicken, it's probably not. Um, if you're eating a whole food, it's probably not. It could be a gluten intolerance that causes bloating. Okay, stay away from that food. But more than likely, um, what I have found, it's you've deprived yourself of eating certain types of foods. So for me, for example, when I started trying to eat healthy again, I was still afraid of carbs. I didn't eat rice for forever. Well, then I decided I need to eat rice. Well, guess what? My, my gut, my microbes, I don't have the bacteria, the good healthy bacteria to break down that type of carb. So what happens? I get bloated. So bloating isn't necessarily a sign of being unhealthy. It could be a sign that you're not eating this food consistently enough and you don't have enough good bacteria in your gut to break it down properly. Mm. Um, it's a, it could be a simple fix as a probiotic, or it could be just being consistent with your eating. And over time, your body will produce that bacteria. 99% of the time, that's the issue, unless there's an underlying medical problem or a food intolerance. Um, but bloating happens set aside, it can be a hormonal imbalance. If you don't get enough sleep the night before, your ghrelin hormone, which is your hunger hormone, can be overactive and you can be super, super hungry. And that will actually in turn um, increase the gases in your stomach. And if you're not feeding yourself, guess what? Those gases are turning, those juices are turning and you get bloated. Mm. I mean, there's a million different reasons, but it's not always a sign of being unhealthy. Most often it's a sign of we need to get your gut healthy to where it needs to be um, and get those good bacteria up to where it needs to be. People are really afraid of carbs. So afraid of carbs. Oh my gosh. Um, and I'd be lying to you. If, if I got paid for every time somebody told me that, I mean, like, please, can I? Because I would be so rich. It started, you know, I think the keto diet brought a ton of this to light where carbs are super bad and we don't want to overspike our insulin levels. And, you know, you want to keep your insulin levels. Insulin, by the way, is a hormone. For those of you that don't know, it is only elevated by carbohydrates. And we know that the reason why it came to be or that carbs are bad is when you eat carbs, your body stores water as well. You can't survive without eating carbohydrates. The problem is what happens is people will go on a low-carb diet lose the weight that they need. It's probably water weight, by the way. And then they'll introduce them back into their diet and feel really gross, feel really bloated, or feel like they, you know, feel like they're heavier. It's your body adapting to a new stimulus. But mm. being afraid of carbs, I think, sets you up for injury. It sets you up for hormone imbalances. And it sets you up for, honestly, medical conditions down the road that are linked to hormones that are turned off or on by carbohydrates. So unless you're a person who's insulin resistant or who's been, you know, even diagnosed with, let's say, Alzheimer's, which is now being called type 3 diabetes, 
You mm. need to have carbs in your diet. You just do. It doesn't have to be a lot, but you need to have some starchy, grainy carbs. And obviously vegetables, I'm not talking about. Those should be in everybody's diet. But Gotcha. So that was actually going to be my next question is those starchy, grainy carbs. Those are important to have, you're saying. They are. Mm. And the biggest problem with that, let me back up. There's no problem with starches or grains. So starches really just means that it's a slow digesting carbohydrate. It's not going to spike your blood sugar. It's going to slowly increase your blood sugar so you have sustained energy. Where people make mistakes is we eat too much of those carbs or we eat them at the wrong time. The best way to maintain a healthy weight and to be able to eat those carbohydrates is to think about when you need the most energy. That could be very different for a lot of people. If you work out at night, you may need that energy at night. That's okay. You're working out at night. But if you're working out at six in the morning and you are not eating any carbs before or after that, and you're not eating any carbs to support what or support or repair what you just did, you're wasting a workout. You're setting yourself up for energy uh, for an injury, which might contribute to my own injury, to be totally honest with you. And you're basically setting yourself up for failure. But those carbohydrates really should be surrounding the most activity throughout your day. You mentioned like uh, grain and starchy. Uh, I can't imagine like Wonder Bread is good for you. <laughs> it's a really good point. So there's good starches and there's bad starches. And um, in case, you know, for those of you listening that don't know, there has been, there's truth to you've heard white starches aren't good, right? Mm. Like white bread's not good. White crackers aren't good or white rice isn't good. And there's some truth to that, um, mainly because anything that is white, um, meaning the food color, it's usually stripped of all its nutrients. Mm. That means it'll digest easier. So if you ever get sick, um, that's why sometimes doctors will say, eat bland foods, eat rice, eat bananas, eat white rice. It doesn't take your body long to digest it. But if it's stripped of its nutrient value, it's literally going to turn into a fast or a fast digesting carbohydrate or a sugar. And if you don't use that right away, meaning if you eat white bread and you just sit, it's going to be stored as fat. Mm. That taken aside, if you're going to eat a food, you want it to have you want it to be nutrient dense. That is probably what I'm coming to see the number one or number two cause of people that cannot lose weight, they're actually deficient in nutrients. Mm. So their livers are backed up, their livers are clogged, it's not working properly, and their body has no idea to do what it's supposed to do with these great foods. So we need those heavier starches that are like the brown rice. Um, you can even get away with like the sweet potatoes. They're great. They're a super low glycemic index, um, but they don't have any components in them that are what we would call a fast digesting carb, mm. and they're nutrient dense. That's really helpful. I mean, just that in it, in itself, because I think, you know, myself included, I'll be honest, is like uh, the best way that I'm able to cut or any cut weight is when I stop eating a lot of bread and you know carbs like that. With that being said, it's like there's there hasn't been a lot of times in my life when I said no to a pizza. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that's healthy though. Like. It's so interesting. Um, you have to have everything in moderation. Yeah. And let's bring it back for a second. Remember I told you when I was in high school, I was a perfectionist. When I started coaching um, nu nutrition-wise, I was a dictator. Um, people got results, but mm. I made them sign contracts where it was, you're not going to drink. Mm. You're going to eat, you know, there's no air quote here, cheat meals. And um, they knew what they were getting into and they got great results, but it it's not a realistic way to coach the average person. Yeah. And I had to pull back and go, what is going to make somebody 
like what they're eating and not feel guilt if they eat a pizza. Because yeah. that's not what this is about. It's not about making you feel like, oh, this food's so bad. There's good and bad foods, but you should be able to enjoy both and have no guilt associated with it. It sounds as if, based off of what I just heard, it's better for me to eat a pizza first thing in the morning than at night. <laughs> Technically, if you work out, um, I mean, if we're really breaking it down, go for it. Or you could eat it right after you work out. Anything you eat post-workout is going to be absorbed and digested at its optimal, you know, at its absolute best. But I'm pretty sure you don't want to eat a pizza in the morning. Um, <laughs> don't test me. You know, <laughs> you might be one of those lucky few. Cold but pizza in the morning is like one of my favorite things You're in the world. so funny. Yeah. You're so funny. But there's a way to eat foods that are a little bit more indulgent and still make them work for you. Mm. You know, even if it is the night before and you're like, I know I shouldn't be eating this. You know, you can get up and you can have a pretty badass workout the next day. And chances are you're not going to miss a beat. You know, that's an interesting thing that you bring up as well. Um, as I bring up these questions from uh, Instagram that we got, it sounds as if there's a misconception around like, oh, I'm going to work out in the morning so I can eat this now. Me, half a pizza now because I'm going to work out really hard the next day. Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound like the right I'd, like theory there, but can you talk about that a little bit? So let me see if I'm understanding you correctly. Like you want to eat a bad, air quote, bad food yeah. because you're going to go work it off. Yeah, in the morning though. In like, the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the night before, I'll have whatever. Got it. And then but I'm gonna, tomorrow I'm going to work it off, so yeah. it's not a big deal. Okay. If you're doing that every day, um, life isn't going to get much better for you. Let's put it that way. So if you're eating a pizza every night- <laughs> Life and you're isn't like, going to get much better. No. And what I mean by that is you can't expect to be like, oh, I'm going to be losing weight here in a week, but you know, I'm eating- in this example, pizza every night, but it's okay because I'm working my tail off that next morning. Um, the body doesn't work that way. And your body is really, really smart. So to answer that question, I kind of have to take it a step back and talk about what we're really doing with nutrition. Right. So when a good nutritionist, a good nutritionist isn't just telling you what to eat, what we're trying to do is take every cell in your body and get it to read food differently. And by that, I mean, right now your food looks at a carb and it reads it or stores it a certain way. It looks at a fat and it reads it or stores it a certain way. When we want to lean you out or get you to lose weight, we are trying to get literally every cell in your body to read those foods differently. So if you're always eating an unhealthy food before you go to bed at night, your body, remember, you're going into basically um, a very low metabolic state when you sleep. So if you do it once, your body's not going to miss a beat. But if you continually do that, your body is going to learn to store carbs and fats, in this case, inefficiently. So mm. you will you may have energy to work out in the morning, but you're going to be in this stagnant point. So you want to get to the point where your body is kind of working like a machine, where the carbs you used are immediately used as energy, regardless of what you're doing. When you get to that point, and that can vary for each person, yeah, you can have that occasional meal. It should be occasional. And you can get up and technically work it off the next morning. Yeah. But you have to reach, I, I don't want to use the word optimum, but a certain state of health where your body is really working more like a machine. Does that make sense? Definitely. I mean, generally, we shouldn't be thinking, I'm going to eat this. And then, because this is what you did when you were growing exactly up, right? It's like, I'm going to eat these calories and then I'm going to burn these calories. That should not be the mentality. It should not be. And if what's interesting is your weight may be the same, 
But if I were to pull up a picture of what I looked like then and what I look like now, it is drastically different. Yeah. It's just your body functions differently. And furthermore, we don't want to be continually eating all those bad foods because it eventually it'll catch up to you. Eventually it'll affect your workouts. Um, you won't recover properly. You won't be able to lift the same amount of weight. You won't be able to um, recover between intervals. And then you're not going to make the link that it's food related, probably until it's too late, you get injured or you're too, you're so frustrated at, you know, I don't want to say you give up, but you're at the point of giving up. Mm. I always say balance, but you can't have that mindset as like I did, you're going to work it off. You're going to work it off. Number one, it'll drive you crazy. Um, number two, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work all the time. I started to notice that just in my own journey toward the last, like in the last six months or so, I think, you know, it's interesting that you say that, but I want to pull up some of these questions that we got from Instagram. There was a lot. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I was, if I, I may have heard of some, I may have not. I feel like I hear new stuff all the time. Probably won't go through all of this because there's like 40 or so and Seriously? we have a finite amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is like, I think this is such a confusing topic for so many people because they hear so many different things like, you know, for, and it, it'll come up here. I'm sure like the keto diet, for example, it's like, okay, that sounds maybe fine. I don't know. It's like, so it sounds maybe, maybe fine for like the short term to like get you started, but I can't imagine eating like bacon every day for the rest of your life is going to be good for your heart. You know what I'm saying? So the first question though, that comes in here is from Savage Grit Fitness. What is up? Uh, <laughs> the question is, what are your thoughts on intermittent fasting? I knew this was going to come up. I knew it because it comes up all the time. So I wish I would have bet somebody. Um, okay, let's let's clear the air. First of all, there are a million ways to do intermittent fasting. If you were to Google it, you would find five or six different ones. In general, there's two things you need to consider. Number one, if you're a male, you have a larger time frame that you can do intermittent fasting. If you're a female, you do not. Mm. Intermittent fasting came about... Um, mainly in the bodybuilding era where people were doing fitness competitions and they wanted to lose that last little bit of fat. And it was usually the week or two before you'd go on stage, they would do low steady state cardio earlier in, in the morning on an empty stomach. There has been divided research and I've actually seen this where it, it can work and it can't. So here's what I usually say, um, or what my best advice. I don't normally, I don't want to say believe in it, but I don't use it as a tool most of the time because you need to get up and you need to get your metabolic rate as high as it possibly can. If you go longer than 14 hours for a female, you're doing damage. So if you're going to do intermittent fasting, this is where people mess it up. If you're starting at 8 p.m., you can't go till one or two the next day. That is past that 14-hour mark. Now you're going into what we call a catabolic state. Mm. If you keep it within 14 hours and it's usually just once a week, it can increase your fat burning rate. But you have to eat a surplus the day before for that to happen. If you're constantly doing intermittent fasting, guess what's going to happen? Your metabolism is going to drop. So you'll lose weight at first, but then your basal metabolic rate or that minimum caloric total your body needs is going to be lower which means you can't eat as much. Mm -hmm. Men can go 16 hours. Um, it has to do with their hormones. Their hormones are very different. Women have web-like hormones. They're all connected. They're a train wreck. Ask your wife. Um, <laughs> for those of you that are married, 
But men can go 16 hours technically and things will be okay. But if you're constantly doing intermittent fasting, especially going into a workout, there's a tipping point where it is going to backfire. So for me as a nutritionist, if somebody's been doing intermittent fasting, the first thing I'm going to do is take them off of it and go, you know what? Let's actually show you how food can work for you. If you hit a plateau, we can interject maybe a day where you're intermittent fasting. And let's say it's a day that's a really easy workout or a rest day for you. Usually I would do it on a Sunday, but it's not a tool that I think should be used multiple times throughout the week consistently. Interesting. That's just my personal opinion. What about fasted workouts? Great question. So I think this has to do with what type of workout you're doing. So let me give you an example. If you're going to do a workout of hours, which is weight, uh, the 12, and it's considered high intensity interval training where you're doing some sort of running and you're doing some sort of weightlifting, you need to eat something. Um, anytime you're doing a weight bearing activity or something that involves lifting weights, you're risking getting injured if you don't have what we call proper glycogen storages. So glycogen is broken down carbohydrates. It doesn't have to be a lot. It can just be even a half of a banana in the morning, but you need a carbohydrate in your system. Mm. If you're going to lift a weight, let's flip that. If you're doing endurance training, like myself, doing in, like uh, endurance running, there's actually times where it is in your training plan to not eat before you run. It's never on a speed workout day. It's usually on a shorter run, but it's to mimic what your body's going to feel like at the end of a marathon when you're completely depleted. So it depends on the sport you're doing. Um, there were a few runs and they were never very long, maybe five miles where I would get up in the morning and do it technically air quote fasted. It wasn't to lose weight. It was, Hey, how are you going to feel if this is what happens at mile 21, mile 22, but to go lift weights or to do something that's high intensity or involves explosive movements, you need to eat, you need to eat. And it needs to be a carb. Interesting that I've been doing this wrong for so long. What were you saying about if you don't have proper Uh, glycogen, you're prone to injury. So glycogen is stored carbohydrates. Uh Okay. So when you eat carbs, when I talked about before you want your bodies to work properly, your body can either store carbohydrates as fat or it can store it in your muscles. And that's what we call glycogen. So if you're eating the proper amount of carbs, you're, you have carb storages in your muscles. That's what makes you look defined. That's what makes you feel strong. If your glycogen levels are low, there's a way for you to feel that. You feel lightheaded. You feel like you can't get through your workout. If you don't have enough glycogen, stored carbs, your body will immediately go to your muscle. So your body is designed in a survival type way. I don't know how else to describe it. It's phenomenally good at storing carbs and fat. It is terrible at storing protein. That's why if you look Mm. at our nutrition posts or if you look at a lot of what our trainers, you know, preach, protein, protein, protein you deplete it very, very quickly. You can't store it, but you don't need it to survive. So your body isn't going to go to fat storages if you run out of glycogen. It's going to go to your protein stores and it's going to go to your muscle. And whenever you're burning your muscle, that feels miserable. Um, In the endurance world, they call it bonking. It's where you feel like you're hitting a wall. Your performance is crappy. You will your muscles don't work the way they should and your movements aren't basically technically correct. And that's when you can get injured. Mm. I think that's, to be honest with you, probably where I got my first injury. I didn't have a coach at the time and I was running, 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 running with not enough fuel. And I think it was probably just the tweak of an ankle and, you know, that's how it happens. 
It's yep. it's interesting that you say that because I, I always intermittent, well, not intermittent, but I would always do fasted workouts, even on sparring days. And then when you say like explosive, I'm like, damn it. Well, you feel it too. Yeah. You know, and listen, I'm guilty of it as well. Yeah. I am super guilty of it. There's been 90% of the workouts I did marathon training, I would say I did not do properly. I really didn't. And Isn't admittedly, it's amazing I actually completed the dang thing. But there would be times where I thought I fueled enough and then, uh-uh. Uh-uh. And that feeling, um, it's not, you don't want to forget it. <laughs> I, I, I hear that. <laughs> I have an interesting question here, and I'm wondering if it's enough context uh, to, to answer properly. Mm-hmm. This is from the Brooke Philanthropist. How can a plant-based diet be healthy when it's full of omega-6s, which is a known infl- inflammatory? That is a phenomenal question, first of all. Whoever you are, you're obviously quite educated. So. This is a little bit of a long-winded answer, but it is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, He's right. You need fats in your diet. But where there's a little bit of misconception is um, not all omega-6s are bad. So what he's referring to is in the world of food and packaged processing food, it is very easy to get in omega-6s. A lot of plant-based diets will use vegan crackers or, you know, vegan processed food, which is high in omega-6. Too much omega-6, he is absolutely right, is inflammatory and it can cause hormonal imbalances. So when you're in, when you're looking at a nutrition book and when you read on fat, you want a two-to-one ratio, two times as much omega-6 to one time um, as much as you eat omega-3. For me personally, I like to flip that. I think you need as much omega-3 in your diet as possible. And what he's referring to is omega-3 is a secret weapon. It is anti-inflammatory across the board. Um, injuries, if you've got any type of you know uh, gastrointestinal issues, if you've got high blood pressure, it is known to bring inflammation down. What he's saying is there's not a lot of natural omega-3s in plant-based foods. So the answer is it's a healthy diet for some but you have to supplement with omega-3. Mm. It can be a plant-based omega-3. Um, it's ma- That's going to be mainly DHA. It's not going to be EPA, which is fish-derived, but you will not get enough omega-3 just on a plant-based diet. In fact, the only foods that are really high that are plant-based in omega-3 would be avocados and a tiny amount in almonds and maybe walnuts. Mm. That's still not enough. But to be devil's advocate, even in a regular diet, people aren't getting enough omega-3. And Unless you're eating fish two or three times a day, have fun with that. Um, Nobody does that. You still need an omega-3 supplement. Mm. So he's right that it can be inflammatory, but the way to counteract that would be obviously eat those foods. You can't not eat omega-6. Omega-6 combined with omega-3 gives you omega-9. Easy way to remember that. Six plus three is nine. Which is good for us considering our math history. Our math history is so great. Um, Seriously, I did have to do that with my fingers at one point. (laughs) So bad. But omega-9 is needed for overall brain health, overall cellular function. Um, Supplement with an omega-3. That's the best advice I could give. To kind of continue that conversation, the same guy also asks, does nutrition of certain veggies outweigh the exposure to the oxalic acid that they produce? Okay. Um, I like you, whoever you are, but I feel like we've been reading too many articles on the internet um, that are a little bit, what's the word? All food is bad. No. Okay. Um, You can't say I'm not going to eat Brussels sprouts or broccoli because, you know. What's the oxalic acid, first of all? I don't know this. 
You know, to be honest with you, there's more than one definition of it. Um, From what I have read, and to be honest, I'm not too, too versed in it, but it has to do with the processing of it, um, how the gases that are given off, Mm. the, the effect that it can have on your body based on how it was raised in the soil based on how it was um, grown, et cetera. We can't ignore that, right? That We can't say that all different, you know, all foods that are grown in American soil are going to be great. But what we can do is just cook it in the best of our ability, I would say. Mm. Um, and definitely there are certain foods you should stay away from that the benefit does not outweigh the risk. Um, might offend someone by saying corn. Um, oh. But... <laughs> I know, right? Um, Corn's probably one of them. But in general, also the way that you cook certain foods can help with that. The the interesting thing about that is I know this person personally, and he he has a gluten intolerance. So he always has to get corn tortillas as opposed to like flour tortillas. So that sucks for him. Well, dug yourself a hole, buddy. I don't want to, I don't want to scare you. Like, you know, it's getting better. But um, if he has a gluten intolerance, that makes sense why he's super, he's probably super sensitive to just foods in general. And there's probably certain foods that have a higher um, rate of that, like broccoli, cauliflower, um, even even kale for some people that can cause issues. So that makes sense. Mm. Um, Let's see here. Got a bunch of them, which is nice. What When shopping for a protein bar, what are some of the key things to look out for, either good or bad? This is such a good question. You have some really good followers. They're mainly fitness people. Okay, great. <laughs> um, like, I was hoping you'd be like, what's a carbohydrate? I'm like, oh boy, okay. <laughs> so, okay, let's let's clear the air here. A protein bar is a supplement, but here is how I always describe a protein bar. You need to think of a protein bar as a carbohydrate that happens to have protein in it. You can't replace it with a protein shake or with any type of animal protein because protein bars do not contain all essential amino acids. If they did, they'd be incredibly expensive. So here's my general rule of thumb. I like to see a protein bar around 20 grams of protein. If it's got 20, 21, 22, cool. But 20 is usually around the minimum. That'll get you enough protein to have an effect. You're not going to absorb all protein from a bar, but you're good there. I like to see the carbohydrates 20 grams or less. If it's like a 35, 40 gram protein bar, like I said, you're eating a carbohydrate that happens to have protein in it. Um, The sodium should be low. It should be less than 300 milligrams. And honestly, 300 milligrams is a lot. It should be around maybe 180, 200 milligrams. And this is something to be really careful of. Most protein bars are going to have um, very limited sugar. It'll be an artificial sugar. The one you need to be careful of is Zorbitol. So if a protein bar has Zorbitol in it, I would hands down stay away from it um, because that particular artificial sugar does not absorb well into your bloodstream. Um, Phenomenal for people that are diabetic because it has no uh, effect on your insulin, but Zorbitol can cause major bloating, can cause major gas. And the thing with food it doesn't have an immediate reaction. So you could eat this protein bar today and two days later be bloated. Well, yeah, your body has no clue what that particular fake sugar was. And now it's trying to digest it and have the effects go there. Um, If you can get something with stevia in it also, and to be honest, even if it's got real sugar in it, okay. Yeah. You know, less than 10 grams. I feel like you should not be so scared of real sugar. No. And you know what? It's interesting you brought that up 
because I was thinking about that yesterday. There's a lot that we know about sugar that is bad. Um, I mentioned type 3 diabetes. I don't know if anyone's heard about that, but um, type 3 diabetes is now being linked is another nickname for Alzheimer's. Um, and what it is, what we've seen, um, I'm a dork, I like to look at studies, is that too much eating of sugar, and this can even be white flour, is starting to degenerate the brain. And it's starting to degenerate the part of the brain that has to do with memory and, um, you know, just overall cognitive ability. So sugar is, you're going to get sugar in everything you eat. I mean, in like even if you eat a sweet potato, there's sugar in it. What you don't want to do is go and sit and eat a pack of gummy bears a day, which ironically, I tend to like to do myself. <laughs> don't judge, but... Mine's Skittles, but yeah. there's We all have our vices, but you're actually better off eating regular sugar. That's why our own particular protein has sugar in it than artificial sugar because the your body... The 12's protein? The 12's protein mm-hmm. does have actual sugar in it. It's not a lot. I think it's three or four grams a scoop, but your body knows what sugar is. It's a carbohydrate. Your body does not know what artificial sugar is, and it can create some really negative inflammatory responses because it's not a macronutrient. So everything in moderation, most people should keep under 50 grams of sugar a day unless you're highly, highly active. Mm. So this is an interesting question, and uh, it's from Kayla, uh, 1025, who asked the previous question as well. What type of water do you drink? Okay. So there's a lot of talk on water, um, whether it should be pH 7, whether it should be alkaline, whether having an alkaline diet works for you. Um, I'll tell you what I drink personally, and honestly, it has to do with taste. I actually like pH of about 7. Um, personally, I love core water. I like the way that it makes me feel. There is definitely something to be said about adding minerals to water, et cetera. But there's no inherent study that says without a doubt, without, you know, with statistical significance that drinking an alkaline water, drinking a more pH valued water is going to bring you overall health, better overall health. So I think it's personal preference. Obviously don't drink out of the sink. Um, Make sure it's filtered to some degree. Yeah. But the data isn't out there to support and I, when I when I talk about data, that's been going back to pharmaceutical days, where yeah. like there's actual evidence that's been backed by a significant study. There's yeah. nothing out there that really shows one's better than the other. I will say, a friend of mine, have you heard of like the Kagan water? I yes, and I have a. You seem excited about this because a close friend of mine um, actually just started using it and has sworn by it. They do. They do do that. Okay, go on. I don't know if it's because she's working for them. Right. <laughs> So it's a little um, bit of the issue that I've had. I yeah. will say to just to play devil's ad- advocate, it really helped me get over a hangover a lot faster. Like insane. It was weird. Like Alexa tried it too. I was like, and because I'm a little bit of a hater on that, to be honest, <laughs> I mean, I get, I think that we should drink good water to your point, but I was just like, man, come on, like drink it uh, after a long night. And man, did I recover a lot quicker? I don't know if there's, Psycho, if it's a well, psychosomatic drink, like two glasses full, it could be. I haven't, I have not tried that water yet, but mm. I will say that um, I love this individual and she makes it sound like it's the holy grail. Yep, I yep. probably will try it at some point, but here's the overall thing I would rather, I, I would be more concerned as a nutritionist of your body being hydrated mm. in general. And that's going to come from drinking the right amount of. Gr- 
purified water in some point, which is at least 64 ounces. Mm. This particular water could hydrate you faster, mm -hmm. um, meaning maybe it doesn't take as long, but I haven't personally tried it. Yeah. So I, and I'm a little skeptical. Um, yeah. And even if it worked great for me, it might not work great for somebody else. hundred so, percent. You know. The only thing I can say, and I, again, I'm like, well, Tom Brady does it. He just like came back out of retirement. It's like, <laughs> all right. You know what I mean? <laughs> I would agree that, that that is a hard one to go like, oh, Tom Brady also drinks massive amounts of electrolytes. I think the Tom day, Brady's too. also vegan. He might just be an anomaly. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, he is an anomaly. He is an anomaly. But I, I was also reading on how many electrolytes he drank a day. And I was like, I am severely under drinking electrolytes. But then I realized also his body weight ratio too. What are the significance of the uh, electrolytes in his in anybody's diet, I guess? So when you sweat or when you're super active, you lose a lot of sodium, you lose potassium, you lose vitamin B, you lose vitamin C. Those are electrolytes. If you don't replace them, you can't repair properly. Your cells can't repair properly. So you might not feel bad, but when you go to try to perform again, you're not going to be able to perform at your best. And we notice that more when we age, right? So you're not going to notice it if you're 21, 22, but... When, if you're doing endurance training or if you're over that 30-year mark, you start noticing that you have to take better care of yourself. So I was reading an article on him, and he drinks electrolytes constantly throughout the day. Mm. And you lose them even just doing daily activity. I personally drink one. Um, I like the brand. They're IV. Uh, liquid IV. Liquid IV. Mm. And I like the strawberry flavor. I will drink one a day for sure if I'm in the middle of training heavy for a marathon, I'm drinking two or three a day. Interesting. And that's about, you know, you got to think about it. That's about 1500 milligrams of sodium, but think about what you're losing through sweat as yeah, well. Yeah. So, um, gosh, all the things I do wrong. You don't do them wrong. You just don't, you're not actively doing them. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I guess that's true. There's been days where like, I'll lose up to 10 pounds a day sweating and oh, to be a guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and like, and, but I'll just like have water yep. or Sometimes I meet you a lot right after. I'm I'm just being honest with you. At least you're getting sodium in there. Okay. It's not necessarily the best, but um I do I don't always, need a reason to justify I this. I do always with my clients too. That's, that's also something I'll ask. Like, how much do you sweat? Yeah. You know, Josh sweats a ton. Um, unless I'm running, I don't. Like I'll barely break a sweat working out. But if I am running, oh my gosh, I am disgusting by the yeah. time I'm back. And you need something, you know. Um, so I wish they had more water, water drinks with the ample amount of electrolytes, not propel, yeah. you know, but you know, something with more. Uh, it's Josh Munn asks, what are your thoughts on the keto diet? And I know we kind of touched on this a little bit. Yeah, I love the idea of uh, avocados and bacon every day, but if I have like four strips of bacon instead of three, I start feeling gross. So, okay. Uh, this is a place where I feel like I'm be t I can be totally honest and let me just, um, preface this by this is my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. And I can, I am sure that there are reason there are people that would disagree. So the keto diet initially came to be for people that had diabetes and it was a, a medical diet. It was for people that had insulin resistance issues. It was a way for them to get all their calories in. It was a way for them to get their leptin levels balanced out, their insulin levels balanced out. And it happened to get them to lose weight. This is speaking from experience. I can't tell you how many. I can think of five off the top of my head where I have worked with people who have done the keto diet and have gotten their blood work done, and it is a mess. And let me explain why. You can't survive, you can't eat 
any type of fat that you want, and this includes saturated fat, and not expect, expect it to have a negative impact on your blood work, especially your cholesterol. So the idea behind the keto diet is you want to stay around ideally under 30 grams of carbs a day to get into ketosis, where your body starts using fat as fuel. It could work for some people. If you're, if you're someone who is incredibly active, that can be really, really challenging. But the idea of eating just protein and fat, only any kind of fat, like you said, bacon, um, this, you can eat a ribeye for that, for that matter. I love ribeye. Yeah. So does, so does my husband. I do not, but the problem is the amount of saturated fat that you're getting. And your body is not meant to have more than 12 to 13 grams of saturated fat a day. Mm. So if you keep that up, you're going to see what I see in my clients, which is some really bad blood work. And there's nothing scarier. And it's going to lead to heart disease flat out. Dude, yeah. Um, you're going to clog your arteries. And I've seen it. So it could be a good short-term diet. I will be honest. My father tried it. And um, he didn't tell me he was doing it until about six weeks in. Mm-hmm. And I I lost it on him. I was like, you know, for lack of a keeping my language, get the, off that diet, you're going to, you know, your heart, your blood work isn't going to, it's not going to be the same. And the minute you introduce carbs back into your diet, you are going to gain weight. Yep. So I would not recommend that personally for anybody that's trying to have a well-balanced diet. Mm. Um, I do think if there's a medical reason for it, awesome, but your overall health is a heck of a lot more important than your weight. And there is nothing good from eating so much saturated fat, which is the majority of fat that you're going to get through eating that diet. People aren't eating avocados all day long. They're eating red meat. They're eating bacon um, most of the time. Living the life. So I could be offending some people, but I just personally haven't seen long-term phenomenal results that are sustainable. I I mean, look, like I I, just baseline. (laughs) And I'm not saying that all people who do keto are like this, but I think that's the problem is they just like, they think avocado, blah, 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 like no carbs. They just do that. And then they're like, oh, bacon is fine. This pork is fine. The steak is fine. Like all these things. It's like, bro, like baseline, very fundamental in my opinion. And I don't know anything. It's like, that doesn't sound like it's good for your heart, period. But you also said something too. Um, there is a fair amount of people that I, I can, th- I've worked with a lot of people over the last eight years and I, I can think of like the female that I worked with and the male that I worked with that did the keto diet. And they said exactly what you did. There comes a point where you just don't feel good. Right. Like your body, your body breaks down fat very slowly and it is, it will clog your liver. And I keep talking about that, but if there's one thing you can do to jumpstart your fitness journey, it would be to detoxify your liver. You don't have to go on a cleanse. You don't have to do anything crazy, but stop eating foods that it's hard to digest. Red meat, bacon, um, anything that has is high in saturated fat. Your liver doesn't work well with that. So get that out of your system. Um, feel, feel better basically. So, you know, I I like the question that's coming up, but I think it's so contextual on a person because, and the question is, um, is there one diet that you can kind of quote unquote prescribe to everyone, which I would venture to say no, just because different activity levels, but I'm going to take who I believe to be most of the listener today and who are generally pretty active at least once a day, they're either doing a spin workout then maybe two times a week they're doing a hit workout and maybe one day they're doing, you know, an actual like lifting type of day. Okay. You know, they're not running more than three to five miles and you know, that orange, you see this all day long. So that, so, you know, somebody with that level of that level of activity casually drinks, 
you know, not necessarily to get drunk, but a couple wines, things like, uh, you know, on a Saturday night or whatever the case may be. Is there something that you would maybe say, like, generally, what are some, like, fundamental things they should be looking at in their diet? I like the way you phrase that. So you cannot give a general diet to somebody. But there are certain things that are, generally speaking, going to help you be healthier as opposed to, you know, less healthy. So um, I would say first, no, there's no general diet. And the reason is everybody's DNA is different. That's just plain and simple, the way that you process food. But there are certain rules, rules, um, things, whatever you want to call it, that generally work. And I would, and I'll list a couple of them here. Um, if you're, if you're that active, meaning you're doing something three, four days a week, the general rule of thumb is get in 0.7 to one gram of protein per body weight. Um, if people were just to do that, just that they would feel so much better. Most people are significantly deficient in protein and protein is the only thing that's going to help you recover. It's the only thing that's going to help you basically increase your metabolic rate. Um, it helps you lean out. So Focus on your protein, number one. Like 150 grams of protein sounds, sounds like, a, like lot a lot of protein. Yeah. So you have to also understand, too, that with that being said, remember, that's a generalization. Sure. There is a tipping point there. So if somebody's overweight, like let's say they're 300 pounds, don't try to eat 300 pounds of protein. Maybe go to point, you know, 0.5 grams of protein. But in general, most people aren't even getting 100. Mm. So I say for my women... You can get in 100 grams of protein a day. That that can be a minimum. And that's usually the bare minimum. For men, you can get in about 120, 140. You really, really can with a couple of protein shakes. And if you're not doing that consistently and you start there, cool, great. Um, That's just a general rule, right? And also understand, too, that if you're not getting all your protein in, don't expect to be able to get that in the next day. You're going to have to work up to it a little bit. You know, like you track your food or you know you're getting 50. Cool. Let's try 75 grams. Get that in. Let's go to 100. But get your protein in. Um, the second thing would be if you're going to eat, um, time your carbohydrates right. And again, this is a general rule. So your breakfast and your lunch, that's the time when you want to have the oats or the complex carbohydrates, um, the rice, or it could be a whole wheat tortilla, something like that. Breakfast and lunch, usually around three or four o'clock, I would say, start switching your focus to protein and fat. Mm. Your dinner, unless you're really active at night, should really be protein, fat, and vegetables. Um, It shouldn't necessarily be a complex, heavy carbohydrate there. If you think about it, all you're doing is getting ready to go to bed. And if you're trying to maintain a healthy weight without really investing in a program, Take those carbohydrates, those, I call them the sexy carbs because they're fun to eat, (laughs) eat them earlier in the day and save your dinner for the protein and the vegetables. Mm, Pizza Um, for breakfast. Okay. Those would help. The other thing is if you get hungry at night or if you're going to drink, try to be mindful of your fat intake. So alcohol metabolizes like a fat, but much, much slower. Mm. So if you're eating a pizza, which is a lot of fat and you're drinking a beer, um, not saying not have a cheat meal, but just understand that that pizza is going to be stored as fat because your body's working really hard to get the toxin or the beer out of your system. So if you're going to drink, try to eat something healthier, maybe not super fatty. Um, and I, I would, you know, obviously get up the next day and work out. I love that. I think those are like very strong, very fundamental things. I think the timing of the carbs is really important. Something that I really learned today, as well as just like the protein thing. Like, 
I think that those are very reasonable uh, for almost anybody to follow, right? It's an easy starting point. And it's not about, ironically, it's not about perfectionism. I have come to learn, but it's what am I doing today that's better than yesterday? And getting getting rid of the thought that, oh, I failed. Oh, crap. I, you know, I ate something bad. The whole day is shot. No, it's not. It's really not. If we can even change that attitude where I had a cheat meal or I had a donut in the office and I didn't mean to, cool, get back, get back on track that day. Don't wait till tomorrow. I slipped and fell and the donut fell in my it mouth. It fell in my mouth. It just <laughs> happened and I just started chewing and then another one came and okay, well, maybe trip and fall into a bowl of fruit next time, yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You've shared so much with us. I was going to like do one more and then I realized there's a lot of things that we can talk about, and I'd prefer somebody just reach out to you um, at this point. So you've shared so much with us. It's been not only has it been like, you know, uh, eye opening and educational in that part, but you have a, a great story as well. And I'm I thank you so much for sharing that with all of us. And um, if some before I ask the last question of the day, if somebody wants to connect with you, how can they find you? Not a huge Instagram person, but I do check it. So I would say my Instagram handle messaging would be the best, um, which is at Nikki Boyd Nutritionist, um, two Ks, N-I-K-K-I, or just send me an email, Nikki at the 12.com, N-I-K-K-I at the 12.com. Um, I love educating people because like you said, there's so many misconceptions and I can't thank you enough for um, thinking this is important enough to highlight. Mm. Um, it, it's just, it's an honor that you would even bring me in and, um, to even have me here. So thank you so much. That's nice of you to say. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. And if we cleared up one thing, you know, uh, then I think that that's, I think that's enough, you know? So, and and I think we did, especially with the keto diet thing. I'm such a not fan of that. I'm going to get all these messages like keto saved my life. I'm like, Oh, for now. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. But let's just think it like bacon fat. Bacon. Do you want to drink? And like, especially when you drain that out, you're like, bro, Come on. Oh, and I, I love know. bacon. That's and Who pizza for breakfast and bacon. like all that. Um bacon on donuts sounds phenomenal right now. You Ooh, know? <laughs> on like a maple donut thing. Okay, we gotta stop. All right. Last question of the day. If there was one food, and to and to preface this, if there's the food could be like a pepperoni pizza, it's not like one ingredient. If there was one food that you had to eat for the rest of your life and that was the only thing that you could possibly eat, what would that be? Is this like going from a health perspective or just for whatever? Just for whatever. Almond butter. Almond butter. Yes. Um, I could survive on a desert island with almond butter and a spoon. I don't know why. It is like my kryptonite. I love it. I can eat a whole jar in a day. That's That sounds healthy to me. Not if you eat as much as I do. Okay. Um, there, in fact, it's in, that used to be like a cheat food for me when I was really strict. It's not a cheat food. It should never be. But um, Josh would used to have to buy or would buy like four containers and say, these three are yours, but this one's mine. <laughs> so it's <laughs> almond butter for sure. Mm, I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This, again, this has been so great. Um, to the listener, thank you so much for your time and attention. We really appreciate it. If you love the episode, we would dig a five-star review. And if you didn't like the episode that much, feel free to stick it to us, but subscribe anyway, because we're going to have a ton of incredible people just like Nikki Boyd back on the show. Thanks, Nikki.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Pod Tease, a production of the MediaCasters. Rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to discover your next binge-worthy favorite. For more information, visit our website, themediacasters.com, and follow us on social platforms at The MediaCasters. This show is brought to you by Podetize, podcast hosting and done-for-you production services that get you heard by more of your ideal listeners. Visit podetize.com to book a free strategy call. That's P-O-D-E-T-I-Z-E dot com.